Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt. Welcome to another episode of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I dig into the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this episode. I reckon you will as well because it's a good one this. It's an interview with the great Andy Howell. Now I'm going to say it straight up. It's not a four hour epic like Andy's Nine Club was, but it is coming in at around two hours which regular listeners will know is pretty unusual for me. And yet that's just the way this conversation with one of skateboarding's truly original thinkers unfolded. I mean, after all, there's a lot to talk about. Sure, there's Andy's career as perhaps one of the biggest cultural influences in skateboarding history, whether as a truly progressive skateboarder, an artist, a company owner, entrepreneur, as he puts it, a visionary, a marketeer, a networker, a patron, basically a symbol of all that is creatively unique about skateboarding but then there's also the incident that changed his life and that of his family at the end of 2019 the fire that destroyed their home and with it the collection of artwork his own and the other work by people like ed templeton shepherd fairy and keith herring that he's been collecting his whole life it's a blow i think it's fair to say that has changed andy's life completely and as you're going to hear one that he's still at the early stages of getting his head around. So given everything that he's been dealing with, I'm really, really grateful to him for even agreeing to come on the show in the first place, to be honest. But I'm so glad that he did, because as you'll know, if you've followed Andy's career, well, you'll know what to expect, should I say. This chat evolved into something really fascinating and unexpected. Andy's always been one of skateboarding's sages, if you like, an artist and an intellectual thinker who discerns patterns seeks out connections and is unafraid to grapple with the biggest themes of all life death storytelling humanity technology you know all that good stuff that i like to chat about on here so we did and like i say this one took on a life of its own and as i think you're going to hear me and andy had a whale of a time settling down to a good old chinwag about life the universe and all the rest um, at a particularly febrile period in human history Um, So I'll be back at the end with some more background on how Andy personally influenced my life, as well as the usual housekeeping corner. But in the meantime, here's me and Andy Howell. Ideas travel. Enjoy. So did you did you get you got the gist right of what this is? This is about. Sounds like you check the website and all that stuff. I didn't have any chance to review anything and that's, I don't know, kind of a good thing because I'd like to go into it with a, you know, yeah. open mind. Sure. But I've done lots and lots of interviews over the years and recently since we lost our house, I've been in this weird state, almost like a paranoia state and like I'm coming out of it now, but like the first couple of months it was terrible. It was just like, I was just depressed and you know, didn't, and so I didn't, that's why I wasn't available when you, when you reached out to me the first time, because I was just like, I'm just not in a space where I can even talk about anything and not let alone the, the tragedy that happened to our family, but like just in general, you know, like nothing seemed interesting to me and nothing, I didn't even want to talk. Like, I think I kind of lost my voice for a while, even because I didn't talk that much at all. Well, it's, I mean, so you, now I'm kind of coming out of that. But I, I, it's grief, right? I mean, you've been going through a, a, yeah. a, a, a grieving process by the, from what I can tell. 
Oh, it's completely. And I, I recognized, you know, that word, but I didn't understand what it was. And I was recently talking to a friend of mine that's a psychiatrist and she was just like, it's going to take you two to four years to get through this. It's just like losing a family member. And in some ways it's even harder because there's so many different tangents of, of what you're, of the loss. You know, it's not just, it's not just like, I think like I lost my dad in 2002 and when I lost him, we were in this really amazing place together. Like we were really connected and like he kind of, he had a disease that had been progressing over years and we, we knew it was coming. And so there was sort of, I was sort of okay with that happening because he was okay with it and we knew it was coming. And, you know, I grieved for a long time after that, mostly through, you know, the art and stuff that I was using as therapy and, and everything, which I kind of documented in that book I did back in 2004 or 2005. But with this, it was so immediate that we went out, we were just having this amazing day. In fact, my kids had a, a friend sleep over the night before and her dad, who's like um, a movie producer guy, he came over and we were all laughing and had breakfast together. And then they left and my wife left to go to one of her friend's house. And I was like, hey kids, let's go see a movie. And so we jumped in the car and went to see the movie. And when we came back, we were coming down the street. We could see smoke billowing up but we live in a really wooded area. And so we couldn't, we were like, I was like, no way, that can't be our house. I mean, somebody's burning leaves or I don't know what's going on, but like, it's not us, you know? And as we pulled up closer, there were fire engines everywhere and we couldn't even get within a hundred feet of our driveway. And somebody came out from the other driveway and just like, it's your house, man, it's gone. And uh, wow. And so that was just like, it was in a period of three hours. We went to see a movie and of course you turn your phone off when you go into the movie. So I didn't get any of the updates that were coming in from like the fire department and police and stuff. And, right. um, and my phone was still turned off when we drove up. And so, you know, I have myself and my two children who are, you know, at, uh, 10 and 12 and I'm walking up with them on each hand and they're just in shock and crying. And like, it was just the most heinous experience. And we got up there to realize, you know, it's just it was just 90 percent burned and that was in a period of a few hours and that place was just packed with everything that we had ever had you know like i can go back to pictures friends gave me when we were 16 17 years old like skateboard pictures through you know art collection book collection my all my wife's like couture like design she does for fashion and jewelry i mean things that we had made and held on to furniture collections, antiques, sculptures, over 500 pieces of art. I mean, it was just, it was just devastating and it still is, you know, but it's uh, the first couple months were sort of like shock and almost like I was saying, sort of like a paranoia of just like nothing is safe, you know. It's sad because it looked like you curated that place, you know, as, as, as almost like a record oh, yeah. of your, of your life and work you know that so i guess and, and and obviously any home is is that reflection of the owner and, and the family and and you know that is that's what a home is about isn't it you make it you, you make it a reflection yeah. of your life but in, in in your case it it seems from the outside like that's what's particularly acute about it because it was such a record of your life 
in skateboarding, yeah. in art, your career, or all, all your friends, you know, because the network that you've got, like all these incredible experiences and memories seem to be wrapped up in it, which I guess is what must have made it doubly hard, really. Like not only the the, the, the losing the property and what that represents, but also the symbolism of of, it, of the loss as well seems to have you know yeah. been what what oh, from the yeah, outside I mean, seems really like shocking to to comprehend really. That's that's really astute, definitely. I mean, it feels exactly that way. And I always thought of myself as sort of a a caretaker of the artwork because yeah, I have. I had so much artwork that I had collected over the years. My wife is also an artist, so she had all this artwork she had collected over the years. And most of the stuff that I had collected was like, you know, it, the monetary value aside, which was really, really high, the the stuff was like trades between friends, you know? I mean, things that, that happened in 1990, 1995, 2001, 2002, you know, like every year it was just building on itself because I always held the art and the creativity at the highest level. Like I feel that, you know, when I even think about skateboarding or music or any of the things that I like to do, it those things are expressions of me as an artist they're not you know it's not like i'm a skateboarder and that's my whole identity it's like i uh, felt i was a skateboarder and that was my whole identity as a teenager but as i got older and got into all the other things that i got into the musicians and artists and all these people that became my friends over that time period and all the experiences with them that sort of became like the whole picture and so, I mean, if a lot of people that had been to our house and luckily we just had this launch of the New Deal thing and the big art show that was at um, Subliminal Gallery at Shepherd's Gallery and uh, a big kind of get together for the team and the artists over at our house just a couple of months before it happened, because then that artwork would have never been seen. You know, I mean, there were original drawings, the original logos for for New Deal, the original drawings for my graphics and Danny Sargent's and just a bunch of different ones that were just like vaporized. Um, and then the, you know, the skateboard art is one thing because that's like directly related to me. It's like my hand created that uh, paintings and things like that that I had done. But then, you know, for instance, in Shepard's artwork, I mean, I think there were probably over 200 pieces of his artwork that were lost. And so that was, the, I've known him, I met him when he was in high school, but I've known him since really before he started making the Andre the Giant stuff. And so I had these bits and pieces and prints and, you know, drawings and original art and so much stuff that was just, you know, to me, I was more of a caretaker of it than I was an owner of it. It was just like had all these flat files. Everything in the house was hung salon style. So every single wall in the house was was covered. Um, and then we had just had this art show for the New Deal thing, which, you know, we personally acquired a bunch of that artwork from the show. So the the house was actually filled with a lot of that artwork that was in the show, too. So it was just a. Uh, I mean, it just compounds when I keep talking about it. It just compounds more and more and more because it's there's just so many things. All the collaborations that I did 
probably a dozen hard drives backing up all the digital work I had done over the last 20 years. Um, you know, just everything. And so as it, so the loss of that, it just keeps, it actually keeps coming in waves. Now it's coming again, which is tough, but it's like, it's, uh, it's something that's just, it's kind of hard to imagine. And it, since this has happened and I, I was thinking, I'm not going to talk about it, you know, but then I started talking about it on social media a little bit and people reached out to me and just said, Hey, I lost my house. You know, I lost, I lost everything that I had. I know exactly what you're feeling. And like, that's been kind of nice because there's been sort of a, you know, sort of like a, a, the community coming together a little bit to, to help us. And, and we have such a great community and network of people around us that, you know, family, friends, um, families from our kids' school, people that, like in our immediate area that everybody reached out to help us. So we, we, you know, we have had so much support and feeling that love has been one of the things that has, I think, been like a silver lining or a hidden, hidden blessing inside the experience. Yeah. So that's been, you know, that's been amazing. And, as, you know, speaking of the friends and family and everything, a lot of the people are artists. And so some some artists that maybe I hadn't even talked to them in 15, 20 years, you know, and people reached out and just said, hey, look, man, I'll I'll get you a new piece. Like, I'll help you. I know you had like three of my pieces or something, you know, but I'll make you something. I'll send you prints and I'll, I'll send you some I'll send you a piece of art or something. So I've already I've already started to receive some of those things. And so the giving part of it and the empathy and the love it's just it's a, it's so hard to explain, but like that's been sort of like a feel good silver lining in the midst of the grieving time. So how like obviously you're processing one of the you know the biggest things that's ever happened to you in your life. What what's helped? Because you're painting again, aren't you? You know, so has have, did you start working again straight away, or did that take a while as well? That took a while. Yeah, like I think, like I said, the first few months it was. It, Imagine, imagine kind of, if you can, leaving home and then coming home three hours later and all you have are the clothes on your back. Like my son just had flip-flops. He didn't have shoes. So like, you know, we literally started from scratch. Like my time was, how, where do we stay? First, it was a hotel for a couple of weeks or a few weeks. And then we stayed, that was right before Christmas. So we stayed in a hotel for Christmas and New Year's and then, in like the first of January, I found us a place to rent. And so, you know, that, that was like, I guess you'd say crisis mode of just like, okay, I got to have a place for my family to sleep like yeah. the next few, next few days. So there was no thought about, like, you know, I need to start creating something. Um, and then that sort of turned into the depression of thinking like in my mind, of course, I, I was going to sleep each night in a state and then having nightmares and then having these dreams that were almost like maybe it was part of the process but saving me in the nightmare and like I would actually be inside the house and I'd be looking around at all the artwork and looking around at everything in the house and then I would wake up and realize that that was a dream and the real reality was that everything was gone and so it was a trip because there were there were things like even a t-shirt or like if you know something that was a favorite thing that I would just reach to to get or put on or whatever and those things were all gone um so and again the community reached out I mean like 
one of my friends in Australia, Luca Ionescu, who's just this amazing guy, he just said, hey, mate, I'm going to help you. And, and without even me knowing, he reached out to a bunch of brands that were like mutual friends of ours who sent packages and stuff to us. And so we got like, you know, clothes and hats and vinyl figures and even some toys for the kids and amazing. skate stuff and things like that. So it was just like absolutely, absolutely incredible that that stuff happened. And while that was happening, I was still in the crisis mode and I was kind of like, okay, there's a box of stuff. Like now there's some Christmas presents for the kids. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just a, it was a complete, it was a complete shit show really. But, um, but it was amazing that people, that people reached out to support. And I, uh, and then I'd say like about two months into it. So probably like March, February, March, April, two, three, four months into it. Then I just started like scribbling things down and I started drawing and, you know, super dark stuff. And, and then it started to change into, I guess, somewhat less dark, I guess. <laughs> I mean, my artwork always has like a little twisted perspective to it. But um, but my wife started making art, too. And, and the kids, the kids who are the most resilient of all, and I think maybe because they don't feel that enormous impact that I feel of all those years of all those things gone. I mean, my son, my son said like a, like a day or two later, he was like, Papa, if it, if it had been the wildfires, we, we would have at least had like 30 minutes to grab our favorite three or four things, you know, five or six things that were meant, that meant so much to us, you know, cause he had his little areas in his room with his artwork and his like, you know, original drawings from people that, you know, we had gotten and he just got, you know, Caballero just given him like a cab dragon sculpture thing that was signed to him. And oh, like he, he was just, he had all these amazing things that to really were sort of like, because I knew these people, he became, he became friends with these people. But like, I think Stevie probably came to True's like third birthday party or something, right. you know, so they, they've known each other for a long time. And so that's one of the people true sees that's like super creative and passionate and doing the things that he loves, you know? And so he, yeah. he sees them as throughout these periods of his life, whenever we visit together or whatever. And, uh, and he, you know, I mean, my hope is, is just the same reason that we surround ourselves with artwork in our house is that the kids will, will, will follow in that, in those footsteps and always listen to their inner voice and their inner inspiration of, of, you know, what they want to do. So they just express themselves creatively and make their life out of that, you know? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, just, I think they're so resilient that they were the ones that inspired me. They, you know, my daughter's really into making slime and drawing and she, she had actually had, I think the worst of the worst of the experiences because she had been studying rabbits for a long time and I'd say like eight months, she learned everything about how to take care of rabbits, how they grow, how you clean them, how you, you know, what you feed them, all these different kinds of things. And then she had gotten this rabbit and it got out of our house in the fall and died. And it was the first pet that she really had that was hers. Right. And that was her first, her first loss that she had. Then we had the fire, you know, on top of that. And so she had, I think it was the worst for her, but both of them just started making stuff, making art, 
designing, you know, they're all on digital media now too. So they're drawing with Procreate and using their phones to make little iMovies of stuff that they're into. And I mean, you know, they're, they're the completely the new generation where everything is, everything's digital and, and online. Yeah. So when I'm interested in, in how art has helped you process this, because I, I, don't, I don't really want to make the kind of glib link to say like, oh, is it therapeutic for you to kind of process these things? But you mentioned, you made a comment earlier about how when you did start working again, you know, the, the work manifested itself to reflect your state of mind a little bit. Um, is that yeah. is that a common thing for you? Do you find that, that, that the, the way you're feeling does come out in the work that you produce? Definitely. I mean, I think... I'm probably the kind of artist that even to my own, you know, um, I don't know the, what the word is, but, you know, it's probably not a good thing for me in my career as an artist, but that I only create on inspiration. You know, I don't, I don't create, I didn't ever create a style of art and then stick to that same thing throughout my entire career making you know the exact the exact same kind of art. Well, you which can, you can see that in, is, in every single form of expression that you've kind of done as well. Sorry, go ahead. You, you can see that in every in every way you've expressed yourself. Anyway, you know whether that is music, like all the different yeah. all the different fields that you've experimented with, kind of like pay testament to that, don't they as well? Yeah, I think uh, that's been sort of in a way, you know, like any one single thing that I've been into doing, I haven't you know, I would say reach some enormous amount of commercial success with it because I've been diverted or my mind goes into another direction. And I'm like, oh, you know what? This reminds me of like this poem, you know, by Pablo Neruda, or this reminds me of like this piece of music or this book or whatever it is. And then I'll, I'll get off on that tangent for a little while. And sometimes that'll manifest itself in this thought that I want to go back and make some sort of music or you know i want to do something else and so i've followed that but it's led me on this adventure throughout my life that's been so incredible where because i was so passionate and because i was so committed to following that passion and that inspiration it's always turned out pretty well for me financially too so that's, I think, been, you know, the payoff. It's never been this, this enormous success, mind-blowing success or whatever, but it's always been, you know, a relatively, you know, good, good um, experience in all ways. Um, and of course, now my age, I'm 52 now, it's like I've, I've graduated from that time all the way through my 30s where I was single and it was really easy to support whatever creative habit I was into because it was just one person that I had to think about you know and then I got married and I had a stepson and a, you know mother-in-law and my own child two children and you know just so many pets like we have a dog and two <laughs> rabbits right now it's like you know there's it's just it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger so the the number of things that I can draw from to, you know, support myself and support my family now is different. And I think um, in a strange way, going into this whole pandemic situation, I've had, as I hope most people have had, lots of time to reflect on on everything, you know, what I'm 
doing, what I'm creating, what I'm contributing, how it's affecting myself and my family and my community and people, the people around me and people I care about. Um, and also, you know, how the landscape of commerce is changing and how everything we're, we're not going to go back to normal after this. It's going to be a completely new normal. That's completely different than what we even can imagine right now. And the people who are in the forefront of sort of imagining what that future might be like are the ones that are thinking of the ideas, you know, that we need right now, not what we you know, not what we need to do to get back to what it used to be like type of thing. So, well, it's an opportunity, isn't it? Basically, you know, like and it has, you have to look at it that way, I think. Yeah. yeah. And whether that's like a personal, as you say, evaluating what's important to you and what can best serve you in your life and how you can, you know, use, use the situation to, to reflect upon that. And like you say, and also on the widest sense to, to look at like, well, you know, what, what do we want to keep? What do we want to change? I mean, God, like we're talking on, you know, a really crazy period in your country right now. You know, obviously with what's going on, like the last two days. Just in the last in the last couple of days. I mean, yeah, I, I just I watched mean, the Killer Mike thing, like before we started talking. Have you have you seen that? Like from from Atlanta. Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen bits of his post, but I didn't see. Didn't he go on Fox or something and do like a whole interview? I haven't seen that yet. It's but. an amazing speech, but like you know, my point is there's there's, there's upheaval in in the states right now, right? You know, on on, yeah. on, on a lot of levels. So I guess my thank goodness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, and you, it's, uh, something that's, it's something that's needed. It's terrible that it had to happen through the, you know, um, the Floyd scenario where it's like another. Rodney King situation had to happen. You know what I mean? It's like, but that's just a symptom. You know, everything's been boiling up to the surface through everyone. And I'm not just talking about African-American United States. I'm talking about everyone. It's boiling up everywhere. It's a big country and there's lots of people with lots of different views and lots of different approaches to life. But everyone understands now you know, maybe, maybe like, you know, privileged white America didn't understand what, you know, personal freedom was really until now when it's gone, you know, and like everything is, everything's on lockdown and there's, you know, all these new regulations and everything that are going on, regardless of what we're facing on the pandemic front and on, you know, the dangers medically and everything else, just having those basic rights taken away, I think is something that's just made everybody stop and go, whoa, is this the world that I'm in? Is this the world that I want? You know? Yeah. Um, And to really have to ask themselves the questions of what matters. And there's a lot of people that are, that are, you know, feeding all the fear and everything that comes from, the traditional media, you know, controlled by just a few people to, to, you know, they're now saying, whoa, wait a minute. Like I am scared. Why am I scared? Okay. Well, it's because every day I'm watching this over and over and over again, these things that are scaring me. And so I think there's, there's like a period of sort of waking up that's going on right now. And there's been no time to wake up when everybody's just hustling, working nine to 10, 11 o'clock at night trying yeah. to make ends meet. You know, it's like all of a sudden they're like, OK, everybody take a break. It has that has never happened before, no. at least not in the last hundred in the last 100 years, you know. So seeing that 
you know, on a global scale and seeing what it's producing is insane. And then throw some, you know, throw some fuel onto the fire and you've got what's happened over the last couple of days. And I think that's just a, a wake up call. And I mean, you know, I woke up this morning and was talking to my wife for a little bit and she just said, yeah, did you, you didn't see the, the news thing where even Fox News and some of these other these other shows are now putting these people on and talking about it and using terminology, you know, like spirituality and humanity and being humanitarian and, and all those kind of things. It's like, you know, maybe this is maybe this is the catalyst to to evolve forward instead of, you know, instead of backwards, instead of going back to the way things were. Do you, do you feel positive then that something something permanently could change for the better? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think that that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm moving forward, you know, instead of stagnating and going like, you know what, I've been defeated because I feel, I felt really defeated you know, after what happened in December and then the beginning of this of this pandemic thing and stuff. It was just like, ah, oh, like I've had these, you know, wild emotional roller coaster type of thing going on. And in order to, in order to move through that, I have to look at just what you're, the word you're using before, like, what are the opportunities? What are the opportunities for me to improve, for me to change, for me to contribute, um, to help people move through this in a way that's positive for for them and for everybody, you know, like I, it, the, the littlest things happen is there's almost no interaction with people now compared to what I've, what I had, you know, six months ago or eight months ago or whatever. But I was picking up some mail and, um, there was a woman that probably was like, I don't know if she seemed like she must've been mid eighties, but she was all covered up. She had a mask on and gloves on and all this kind of stuff. And she was picking up her mail and she just desperately wanted to talk. Like yeah. we were standing in this in this like UPS store where the where we had our mail have our mailbox. And she just I could just see her just she just wanted to talk. She was looking around like erratically and just you know, I, and I just imagined for a moment what it must be like to be that age and never having seen anything in this like this in your life and going through a period in your life where you're reflecting on mortality and everything else that that is coming. And all that fear, plus having, you know, for the last 30 years, sat on a recliner chair and looked at the news, you know. So it's like that to me, it was just crazy. And I I just started talking to her. I was like, yeah, I live on such and such down the road and, you know, all this kind of thing. And she was like, where do you live? You live next to Lucy. You did it. You know, she like she knew everybody around the whole area because she'd been there, I guess, forever. And um, and then you know, the guy who worked at the store was in there too. And, and, you know, he's got his mask on and all that kind of stuff. And he was helping me carry some stuff out to the car afterwards. And I was like, can you imagine like what it must be like to be, to be in that age and in her position right now? It's like, yeah. yeah, just, just insane. So it's like, we have to, we have to make those connections. I think when there wasn't any of this pandemic thing going on, there were times when I just didn't even make the connection. You know, I'd be like, ah, I'm busy. I have to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. I'm not going to stop and talk to this person, you know, but I think we need to make sure that we do that now that, that expressing our empathy is more, more important paramount. than ever. 
more important than ever like yeah. my my neighbors are both 80 you know mid 80s no family around they've been 12 weeks like in the uk you know your advice if you're over 70 like just not to go out really and um yeah yeah we we bought them dinner me and my wife um just because we were like uh, you know what nice. they must have been they must be so lonely um and and you know they were they were very very touched but i guess my point is like it's just more important than ever isn't it like such a simple thing like this crit like this like you just, like you say just talk to somebody it's never been more important yeah. i don't i don't think than it is right now yeah i mean everybody's everybody is you know the, i'm sure they were really lonely and that was really kind of you to do that everybody in their own way is going through that exact same thing you know it's like even kids my kids are just like i haven't seen my friends you know we finally went skateboarding with a couple of friends like over the last month and you know there was for like a couple of months two or three months in between that there was nothing they talked on on uh zoom you know yeah they would just connect on in video and basically and my son's into playing games video games so he's on the you know has a headset on where he can hear other people and they're like going get this guy get that guy but they're not they're not with each other you know they're sort of you know one one experience removed from being physically with each other so taking them skateboarding and then taking them to the beach to go surfing and they just opened the beaches again here with the you know prerequisite of social distancing and all that but like the you know seeing my daughter see the rocks and see the beach and see the ocean really you know with her toes in the sand for the first time in months she just made a beeline out onto these rocks and started pulling up sea slugs and crabs and turning over rocks and, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe, you know, we may, and sometimes we may not have gone to the beach for a couple of months, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. In the past, but it's like when it's, when you can't, all of a sudden it becomes this, you know, this lifeline. So yeah, it's been, it's been intense. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, it always brings me back to art, I think, and just creative thinking. But it's like there's so much cool art being made right now and so many innovative ways to get artists together, even though we're all separate and separated. Um, I think that there's, you know, generally the artists have the ability to sort of not, I wouldn't say see the future so much, but tap into the universal mind of consciousness and sort of feel and empathize with what's going on with everybody at the same time, even though it may not be completely tangible all the time. I think that that's what the creative mind is. You know, the creative mind is an elusive state and able to connect with a lot of the energy that's out there in the universe that's, that's moving around that, the person who's in what I would consider sort of an unconscious state is not really tapping into that. You know, they're more focused on the tangible and the things that are happening right in front of their face. Whereas artists are able to sort of, you know, look beyond that to some extent. Well, that's always and, that's always the role of art in this kind of situation, isn't it? To to kind of yeah. make those connections, isn't it, for people? Yeah, I mean, in one way, it's to just provide relief you know something funny something beautiful you know a beautiful landscape a beautiful picture whatever it might be that that, that's one role is to kind of give people some brief reprieve from whatever it is that they're going through but the other side of the coin is sort of 
to inspire critical thinking and to like use their art as a voice to help catalyze the feelings and emotions and you know whatever's been going on with people in the world and give people something to look at and go yeah that's how i feel you know um i think that that's i think that's you know a key role of the artist and in a time like this and in lots of times when things have been in transition and you know I mean, I, I think back for better or worse to Obama's campaign and, and what happened with Shepard's art and not just Shepard, but Shepard was sort of a catalyst for thousands of artists to make things during that time, expressing their opinions about, you know, equality and changing of the guard and all these different things that were that were happening politically. And that really moved a lot of people. Um, and I think there's just as much of a, of a opportunity and responsibility for creative people to do that now. Um, and then you've got, you know, the, the internet technology and social media and everything, which allows people to proliferate their, their visions and their, and their sentiments, you know, in a really big way. And, maybe people get caught up sometimes in just trying to get more likes and more followers and they're not necessarily staying true to what their feelings are, you know? So I think it's, it's, it's a reminder, this situation that we're in is a reminder of how, how much power individuals have and especially creative individuals to, to help bring people together and, you know, catalyze, intangible ideas and feelings that people are having into action was this the th the themes you were exploring in that piece you put on instagram a couple like i think it might have been a week or so ago it, it, like one one of the cap i think one of the captions you were talking about this kind of territory and 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 how this was that is that was that what you were you were looking at with that piece the one with the eyes yeah. changing as they went around in a circle yeah, yeah exactly. i mean i think it started as the idea that I'm not so sure what my identity is in this digital and digital is kind of a passe word, but like in this internet, internet infused technology infused existence that we're in this set like this, you know, separa how, this separateness, if you like, you know, the fact that we, that we yeah, have this remote, how do I identify, how do I be human? How, how do I continue to be human? I mean, I wake up and I feel aches and pains in my back from skating yesterday. And like, you know, I I'm thirsty. My throat's parched. I got to get a glass of water. Uh, like, you know, those are my physical human things that are happening. And then spiritually what's going on inside in my mind and my hopes and dreams and everything else. And then there's this parallel existence of the me that's on social media and the me that is being analyzed and quant, you know, quantified and basically codified by the internet technology companies and there's all these different layers of me that are being sliced and diced and and reworked and potentially even you know understood by ai decoded and then spit back out as a reflection of me that's not a real person right now in like you know customer service bots or recommendation engines or whatever, you know, yeah. Siri or Alexa or something. It's like all these things that are going on. I, I have to ask myself, like, how does my humanity fit into that? How do I retain my humanity 
and still take advantage of technological advancements, which I think, you know, they have a potential, they're, they're, you know, they're not benevolent or malevolent. They could be good or bad. It depends on who translate, who takes them and uses them. And it's like, you know, finding that place where I am. And of course, I've had lots of time to, you know, watch videos and read and do all this stuff over the, the past few months. And it's like seeing the way some futurists are talking about the combination of organic and synthetic materials and integrating technology into our own minds and, you know, changing humanity by upgrading our systems, our actual physical and, you know, systems. Um, it's just, it's crazy. It, you know, it's, it's beyond what I could have imagined science fiction to be when I was a little kid, you know, yeah. when I was watching land land of the lost and star Trek, you know, it's like, it, it's just so far beyond that now, but it's a world that my kids are growing up in and navigating in like such a quick and easy way as just part of their lives. And it's not going away, but we have to find for me anyway, this is my reflection in that piece. I have to find like, where is my place along that chain? And am, am I actually getting sucked into a black hole of singularity or am I having the opportunity to help, you know, in my own way, creatively contribute to the evolution of humankind? You know, it's like mankind right now is doing a pretty shabby job of taking care of everything, you know, and pretty shabby job of taking care of the planet. And the and other people and equality and you know issues with hunger when there's plenty of food and water shortages and water rights and sovereignty and you know all these different things that are going on it's like it doesn't work generally you know so how how do we navigate this this you know time of quantum leaps in what people would say is progress technologically where we're actually going away from what people have known for thousands and thousands of years, which is how to coexist, yeah. you know, with the planet and everything around them without making a negative impact. You know, I mean, the, the answers are not to, to call, to call the population. It's to figure out how to use what we have in a symbiotic way with everything around us and, and the natural world and the technological world coexist. And so, I mean, that's what I was exploring with that piece. I'm sure all of that didn't come across, but it's uh, it's just generally that feeling of like, am I getting sucked into this black hole or is this actually an opportunity? So, uh, and what, what conclusion did you, do you think you've reached at this point? Do you think, do you think it's possible to retain this spark of, of humanity that you're talking about in, in, the, in the face of this like relentless march of progress because that that's the other thing that's been really interesting about this situation isn't it because you know what you're talking about is something that everybody who's you know th at all thoughtful is going to recognize you know everybody's like gr try, yeah. try to grapple with this this new reality yeah. that we face but but the pandemic was it almost fast-tracked everybody didn't it because it removed that day-to-day -day humanity that day-to-day -day contact that we're talking about it just removed it in a, in a yeah in a moment didn't it so suddenly everybody's faced within a further level of remoteness so i just wonder yeah. i just wonder if what your you know do you feel positive at the end of this or during this do you, do you feel i do i do feel positive and i think it's because 
what's been covered up in humanity is our innate spiritual spirituality. And I'm not talking about, you know, a religion or anything. No, I, I'm just I, talking I, about I, I basic, basic spirituality. Like yeah. our spirituality and our creativity and our connection to this universal connection, universal mind, a connection we have to everybody and everything all the time, every living being is so powerful that nothing that's made of zeros and ones can ever come close to understanding it or emulating it. If you cover it up with fear and separatism and all these other things that are happening to us right now in such an intense way, it's easy for people to forget their spirituality, to forget their humanity, and then just to go, oh, well, these guys are smarter than me. I'm just going to do what they say. It's like, no, the, the reality is in your heart, you know, we all know, we all have all the answers within us. That That's just a basic human condition that we have. We all have the knowledge of the universe in every atom and every cell in our body. And so taking that and understanding that each person is more powerful as an individual than, you know, than all of these machines combined and unifying those people, bringing those people together to think critically, to solve problems. I think that's an opportunity. And I think we're seeing little bits of that. We're seeing the sparks of like anger and the first outbursts and everything right now. But just right behind that are incredible intellectuals and people with you know such a such kind hearts that they haven't resorted to doing things coming from a place of fear and hate in the things that they've done and the opportunity is for those people to come forward with the answers and to and to help guide people in a different direction because everybody's just fed up you know um so i think that that's an opportunity and as that relates back to technology Technology is not going away, you know, where we've been on this fast track that now is taking quantum leaps of, you know, 100% efficiency and scale and everything else in every year, pretty much now. It's how fast things are going towards this world of, you know, 5G, I guess you would call it, where, you know, this is just one more step in that process, but it's like where everything is connected, you know, and everything is being monitored and everything is being quantified and you know every gesture is being you know an algorithm is taking that and and overlaying that on thousands of points of data about each person or whatever all that stuff is is going on but that still doesn't replace the basic human condition and spiritual condition of people and the power that especially the, the in the forefront of that the intellectuals the you know intellectuals are able to to process and think about think about all the hard concrete physical evidence of things that are going on and put that together and make it digestible i guess you would say excuse me let me get a drink of water yeah i mean i guess i guess it's why storytelling communication are is is so important isn't it i mean i always equate the the, the consciousness that you talk to to communication to storytelling you know to me it's why it's such a fundamental human desire need you know it's part of us isn't it this this need to communicate through stories to try and interpret the world you know what what wherever we are in 
you know whatever period we're in that's that's at the root of it isn't it you know to try and make sense of it to try and help other people make sense of it and right uh, now definitely it's 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 never been more important i don't think yeah and what is storytelling passing down information and knowledge that comes from generations of information and knowledge which comes from what works and doesn't work and you know how is the best way to coexist with other people and with the environment and all of that you know on the basic physical level those things are already known you know we've just now recently put the variable of technology in that's just like it's the new it's a new religion it's a new god it's kind of like oh well you know the, the old religion couldn't explain how all this stuff came to be. And so now let's just, you know, let's just take the data and crunch it and that'll be the answer. It's not really the answer, you know, it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle and it's one tool, just like a blunt instrument or a stick, you know, that we're using to stir up the pot and see if we can make things work. We have to understand how to use it to, to make things work better, you know? Yeah. So I had a question about what you were saying earlier, you know, the way that you've been coping with what's been happening to you recently, you know, this year. Um, Because one of the things that really strikes me about about your career and and the way that you've expressed yourself through all these different mediums is is the creative confidence it seems to have taken, especially when you were younger. Because, um, (laughs) you know, like to, to, to be confident enough to say like, hey, we just started a new deal. I'm going to go off and I'm going to start Underworld Element or like, you know, I'm going to start Zero's Fisto or I'm going to do a zine. I'm going to do this. You know, that, that's been a real theme of your of your career. And also, it's just a theme of, of you know, honest creativity and expression anyway. You know, like, like if you're going to, if you're going to express yourself like truly, it, it, I think it does take confidence in yourself and what you've got to say and the ability. You know, you mentioned like earlier, you said, I like I've always just been guided by wanting to express myself truly you know I've never chased the thing I've yeah. always just wanted to and that and that's a confidence thing you know which is something that I think I'd, I'd like to ask you but I guess my question on this is like has the way that you've reacted because it sounds like your confidence has been shaken I guess that's what I'm saying with 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 the fire yeah and what and what's happened is that is that a new experience for you is that the first time that you've no <laughs> not the first time it, it it's um i mean when i was a kid i was just headstrong always you know my my mom would probably tell you the same thing i mean she would just say like when he thought of something he was going to do it no matter what and he wasn't going to stop until he did it and so that sort of was my mo from the time i was a kid and as i started to realize you know, I think the first things that made me realize I could express myself were like punk flyers and skate zines, you know, where it was just like, I can make that. Yeah. I made one of those, you know, I had a friend, a couple of friends in my neighborhood that had a punk band called Dead Aim. And I drew the little skeleton like creatures for their black and white Xerox, you know, tape tape cover you know what I mean and I was just like oh my gosh I just did that and now all these other people are seeing that and like I can these ideas that I have these things that used to just be oh let's play a game of you know hide and seek or let I would get all the kids in the neighborhood together to play football or lacrosse or whatever it was before skateboarding and everything else came 
it's like that's that was I was just like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like I can ride a skateboard and I can I can create zines, I can do this. And like that just I think from that moment on, I just didn't stop believing that I could manifest whatever was in my head into the physical world. That's the confidence so, I'm talking about though. Cause that like, and that's, that's that, I don't think that's that common, especially at that age. I don't know, but it, it definitely, it def. I mean, I came up against things that, that wanted to hold me back and there were lots of naysayers. There were lots of people who were like, ah, oh, dude, you can't do that. Like, what, how, what makes you think you can do that? You know? And uh, then I would go home that night and screen print the t-shirt myself. You know what I mean? I would like figure out how to do it because yeah. you're not going to tell me I can't do it. You know? And so it was as much of a rebellious punk attitude of just like, I'm not going to be held down or, you know, and I think that that's what started me off. And then along the way, especially in the first part with skateboarding and then, you know, being a skateboarder on the East Coast, which was probably a lot like being a skateboarder in the UK. It was like we were completely disconnected from this golden land of California with, you know, the magazines and Del Mar and all these different things. Yeah. And like and I just we just built it ourselves. You know, we started building ramps and then the city outlawed skateboarding. And so we got this, we petitioned the city with thousands of petitions and we got them to build a huge ramp, which ended up being the, one of the best ramps in the U S and then all the pros started coming to skate with us. You know, yeah. it was just, uh, it was just very much just like, you know, the, the most overused phrase, I guess. But for us, for me, it's like, I look back, it was just this DIY culture of just create it yourself because it didn't exist. You know, there wasn't street skating. There wasn't, uh, you know, there was just barely, there was vert skating, but the parks had died. So we were building ramps and then sometimes we couldn't get enough wood to build a full ramp. So we built a half, like a half size ramp, which was, you know, nowadays would be called a mini ramp. Yeah. And like, you know, we were just making it as we went along and each day was sort of an adventure of like, what are we going to create today? And I think as somebody who's, I would just say I'm an artist through and through, like that's what my life is about. You know, and that was definitely one of the hardest things was my parents not supporting that uh, as a kid, not wanting me to do that just for their fear of that's not a pathway you should take as a you know professional career pathway. Yeah. Um, it took a long time for them to come around. And I think part of the thing that made me successful and kind of driving through those plenty of insecurities and stuff that came along with it, you know, were just saying, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to prove that I can do it. Um, and so I, I look back and I see a lot of these kinds of interviews and hear a lot of these kinds of interviews now with people from my generation. And, and everybody had that same drive because it, it didn't, it didn't exist. You know, I can remember bomb dropping on my skateboard when we were, when we decided we were going to start skating on street, you know, it was like me and a couple other friends. And I had hurt my knee and I couldn't skate the vert ramp. And I was sponsored by Santa Cruz at the time as an amateur. And I was just like, you know, what am I going to do? I can't skate. And so I would sit in front of the ramp in the parking lot every day at Trashmore or Linhaven, And I would just pose hand plants with my little soft cast that was on my knee because my knee blew out. And I was like, wait, this is kind of fun. You know, like I can do a blunt on the, on this curb. I can go up and slap my board up into an axle stall or whatever. 
And then I realized, well, that's streets. I'm going to skate on the street. I didn't even call it street skating or anything. It was just like, I'm going to skate on the street, you know? And that's kind of like how everybody starts, right? You cruise down the street and tic-tac or, you know, carve down the street or whatever. And so, you know, that was another big turning point in my life that away from vert skating, which was what I was so passionate about. But I just looked at it and I was like, this is an opportunity, you know, I'm going to keep doing this every day. And like, I, I just, of course, like over this time, I've also taken the time to connect with people I haven't talked to in a while. And I just talked to two of my OG skate friends, a guy named Otha Nolan, who was a punk drummer and just super rad skater. And then Charles Harmon, who became like a really rad photographer and just had this crazy adventure of a life. And we just connected and we started talking about old times. And it was just like, Charles was like, yeah, all the guys at the vert ramp, like the Gacheras brothers and everybody else were asking like, where's, where's Andy? Like, why hasn't he come to the ramp anymore? And, you know, Charles was just like, he's skating street, you know, he's skating on the street. And it was just like, you know, I just departed from something that was just so core to my life. But if I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have led me to the next step, you know, or the next stage. Um, and then there, you know, you ask about this, you kind of mentioned this unwavering drive. It definitely wasn't unwavering, but I had a lot, a lot of like what I would consider crossroad moments, I guess, where I just got to these points where it was like, I have to decide what I'm going to do. Like I have to fucking go for it. And, um, one of them was I went, I decided I want to go to art school instead of continuing down the path of going to, you know, whatever it was going to be, Johns Hopkins or University of Virginia and playing lacrosse because I was really into lacrosse at the time too, same time as skateboarding and, uh, and continue on that path, which would have led me in a completely different direction. And I just decided, you know what, I'm into art and skateboarding. and That's all I want to do. And so I went home and told my mom about it. And she was just like, oh my God. She was a teacher at this private school I went to. She was, and I had gone there from first through 11th grade. So this was in 11th grade, a representative from the art institutes came to my school and went to my art class. And luckily, because probably my art teacher who knew she wanted me to pursue something in art, she'd been my art teacher from first through 11th grade. And, and this guy came in and said, you can make a living out of doing art. And I hadn't even heard those words put together in my life up to that point. You know, I was 17 years old. And so like I made the choice. I went home and told my mom that and she just freaked out. She sent me to see a psychiatrist. She went to the psychiatrist herself and I just told the psychiatrist what I wanted to do and why I was so passionate about it. And she told my mom afterwards, you know, you're the one with the problem. Like this kid actually knows what he wants to do. And that's really rare for somebody in at his age. Yeah. And so my mom was like, well, I guess you can go to art school. You know, it's like break a leg, go do whatever, you know. And so I ended up going to art school and ended up down in Atlanta. And there was a period where um, I had just gone to Cal out to California and skated in what I would I would say it was probably like the first, some of the first street contests. Like I skated amateur in the Zacto street style, you know, the famous one with the broken down car that like not yeah. sallied up onto the hood of the car and stuff. And like I broke my truck right before the, the, my run in the contest and the practice. So I borrowed Jeff Kendall's board and like, it was so loose. His trucks were so loose that I literally was just wobbling around the course. And I think I still got like probably eighth or ninth place or something, but I didn't win the contest, you know? 
and like, and I came back home and Santa Cruz quit sending me skateboards. And I was like, dude, what's up? Like, why have you, why have you quit sending me stuff? This guy named Tim Piamarta was a team manager and, and they didn't, he said, oh yeah, your package is in the mail. And literally for like three months, my package was in the mail <laughs> and I didn't have, I didn't have a skateboard to ride. You know, luckily I called up a friend of mine, Reggie Barnes from North Carolina, and he started sending me some boards to ride. But I had like these old ragtag beat up boards that I was skating on and I went to the Savannah Slamma contest, the first Savannah Slamma contest, because it was close to where I was living in Atlanta. And my friends and I all went down there and we were raging and partying. And I snuck onto the course during the pro practice for that. I was like, I got to get on the course. You know, I got to skate with these dudes. Like, I know that guy, Mark Gonzalez. I know that guy, Tommy Guerrero, you know. And so those guys didn't care that I was on the course. But um, like Stacy came up to me and I had. I had reached out. I was at this point where I didn't have a sponsor. So I'd reached out to, I knew Nottis. I reached out to Nottis. I, I reached out to Stacy. I reached out to a few different people. And um, I hadn't, uh, hadn't really broken through, I guess, or at least I didn't think I had broken through. And uh, so I was skating on the course and I literally had this board with like, a half of a triangle tail, like from doing little backside scoop ollies, my tail was almost gone, you know, and it was just this beat up board. And I was, I was at this, that was an insecure moment. I was looking around and everybody had brand new skateboards and, you know, it's like, there's the bones brigade over here and Neil blender. And I was skating with all these guys, you know, and, uh, and Stacy came up to me and he goes, Andy, you're going to skate in this contest. I was like, dude, I got this old board. In the back of my mind, I was hoping like Stacy's gonna, you know, Stacy's gonna say, "Well, come ride for Powell and ride this board," you know, <laughs> and like, here's your brand new pro model or whatever. Yeah, you know? I yeah. didn't even actually, I didn't even actually think about having a pro model. That wasn't even in my cards of like one day I'm gonna have a pro model. It was just like, I got to take the next step. If I don't, I'm gonna just be skating with my friends in Atlanta, and I'm not gonna, you know bridge this gap. And I had sort of bridged the gap already. I'd been to California and most of my friends hadn't, you know, I'd skated with all those guys. I realized I could, I could hang with those guys. I could skate with them, you know? Anyway, long story short is what I didn't realize and what Steve size only told me many years later, like literally a decade later or more was just like, you know, Steve, Stacy had told Steve to come find me and skate with me that night. And like figure out, you know, we want to put this guy on the team or not type of thing, you know. And um, I'd say size, I think size was Am then, but he, he was like the, the guy ripping the hardest, you know, on the Am team at that time. And I had gone out with my friends skating and, you know, I had no idea about this, of course, but I didn't, I didn't run into size that night, you know. So I went back home to Atlanta, just bummed and rejected and, you know, well, I guess it's just time for me to focus only on my art. Like, you know, it's, I'm going to just follow this path of being a designer or photographer, or, you know, artist or whatever. And, uh, and then one of those aha moments, I just woke up and I was like, fuck that. This is your chance. This is it. There's not, there's no other chance, but this one right now. And so I bought a ticket to California. The next contest was the Carson Velodrome contest. And I went out to the contest my buddy drove me up in his rickety old uh, Volkswagen bug that I didn't even think was going to make it from, from Huntington Beach up to Carson. And I entered myself in the pro contest. I didn't even have a board sponsor, you know? So it was like, <laughs> I was just like, you know what? I'm knocking this door down, you know? And, uh, and that was, you know, that's where that drive just came back and kept pushing me through. 
to, you know, to making sure that I did at least give it a fair shake to, to see if I could realize that dream, you know? Yeah. To, um, to recognize those moments and recognize when you've got a, you got, a, you got, a and I was on. terrified. Right. I was terrified. I mean, I stood up at the top of that, the velodrome, you know, what a velodrome is, it's like where they race bicycles. Right. So there's this huge banked walls. And of course, Christian and all these guys were just like, woohoo, dropping in on these banked walls, going a thousand miles an hour you yeah. know, to them. It was like riding upland or riding a skate park or something, which I didn't grow up on, you know? So I was like, you know, dropping into this thing and I had my tricks. I knew I could do certain, some tricks that probably nobody else was doing. But it was just like, I don't think I can make it down this drop in and everybody's dropping from all the way up at the top. I got to do what everybody else is doing. So they'll take me seriously type of thing. And I stood up on the curb and my board looked like a little pencil. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And the, and the guy was announcing my name and just, you know, it was just ridiculous, but it just dropped in. And, you know, right after that contest, Jim Muir came up to me and was like, do you want to ride for Dogtown? And I love Dogtown. I love Jim Muir. I love uh, everything about that whole history, but it just wasn't my, wasn't my style, you know, at the time. Sure. And, uh, I was on kind of on a different tip, I guess. And then Schmidt came up to me and I knew Schmidt already because I'd skated with them in the mid, mid, mid Eastern skate series, uh, old skate contest back in the day like and right. also knew he was from florida i knew he was an east coaster you know so i was like oh here's a guy from my my <laughs> neck of the woods you know and uh and i just said yeah man you don't even have to give me a pro model just just like give me some boards you know and he's like well you'll get a pro model and we'll do all that stuff and, and that was it from from that day i you know skating for schmidt and ended up taking me on the whole path you know so as, as an east coast skater what what was your relationship to the West Coast back then? Because, like you say, it was. It, it, oh, I it, I never wanted to move to the West Coast because you and cause my you, experiences. You were steadfast Atlanta, right? You, you like even even like as as your career took off, you know, you were you were somebody that seemed really, you know, it was important to you to represent the East, you know, like to to represent definitely Atlanta, uh, represent Atlanta and, definitely and be like we don't need to go there to to do what we want to do. Is that is that kind of how it was? It's kind of, that's what it looked sort yeah. of looked like, you know. Yeah, it was for sure. All the way up until 92 when Paul and Steve were like, dude, your, your, your focus is all over the place. <laughs> you know, you've got to move out here to do this. And I finally made the, the commitment that I would move out there. But my experiences of the West Coast at that time were everything felt really superficial. There were two places as a kid, you know, as a kid who grew up in beach town and like, I really loved Encinitas and Cardiff, like that area in, in the southern part of California by San Diego, because it was like little beach towns. And, you know, I was a surfer, too. So I, I grew up surfing. And um, and then San Francisco, because I would go up there and it felt like New York, like it felt like a laid back version of New York to me, because I spent my summers in New York at like Jeremy Henderson's place in the Lower East Side and, you know, all the guys up there that I would skate with. And the um and then just you know going to san francisco i i knew tommy tommy had come to virginia beach and skated with us at one point like on one of their demo tours and you know i had connected with these guys that were i think sort of like i don't know what you call them the forefathers of street skating sort of because there weren't that many of us that were street skating right i mean i i learned a lot of the early stuff that i learned in street skating from gons when I I think this is around the time Gonz's first 
sticker came out. So in 1985, 86 time and his I went out there and I was, I had just skated in a castle contest and my friends that I just told you about that were from Virginia beach. We all went out there. We're like, we're going to make the pilgrimage. This was while we were still in high school. We're going to make the pilgrimage. We're going to skate in the contest in California. And we skated in the castle contest. And then we ended up down in Huntington beach at our friend Blake's house. And there were too many of us to fit in his mom's house. So he put us over at Marty Jimenez's house and Marty lived in this little cottage right by Huntington beach pier. And Gans was living in the living room of his floor in a box made out of four by eight sheets of plywood in the middle of the floor with a little light inside. Classic. And like, (laughs) and I was just like, that was just one of those moments where like, oh my God, like the light, the light bulb went off when I, when I skated with this guy, I'm like, this is like, this is the future of, of all of this, you know, like this is the future of skateboarding, just skating with him. And I ended up calling my mom. I was supposed to go home a couple days later and my friends went home, you know, before I did. And I told my mom, look, I got to stay here. (laughs) I can't tell you what, why, but like it's safe. And I just have to stay here as long as I can. So she let me change my plane ticket for like a week later. And I skated with Gons every day around Huntington Beach, like on ramps and like little alleys with bank to walls and benches and curbs. And And I just realized at that point that skateboarding wasn't just slappies and bonelesses. It was like a completely different kind of skating, you know? And, um, I went back home after that and there was a little local contest in Virginia beach and I had just evolved to like the next level. And that was sort of like when I sort of made a departure from the rest of the people that I was skating with, as far as like, you know, my ability and my understanding. And I, I wasn't, necessarily better than everybody else because like there's a guy named Bushka Vidal who was sort of my one of my closest friends and my guy I skated with all the time and he and I would volley for first and second place on contests but like it was that I understood that there was no limit to what was possible in the street you know yeah whereas before it was a translation of vert onto street sure and so that was a pretty pretty cool moment but i'm jumping around a little bit but it's basically like i've had these moments in my life where you know i've just had to follow that inspiration and it wasn't for a lack of insecurity or fear it was just that the insecurity or fear wasn't greater than my drive to do it you know yeah no it's really interesting you know you mentioned steve and paul and obviously you know you guys are so you know the story is really well told like about how how closely connected you are but one of the things that i wanted to ask you is you know working with friends has been a big theme you know like you mentioned shepherd you know you guys had, a, had an art shop right with dave kinsey you know you've got your agency that you did with friends uh, and that and that, yeah. that can be that can be challenging you know i've, I've worked with friends um yeah, and, and definitely. Like it, it's not easy to maintain those friendships and to run a business or whatever the venture is. But you seem to have, yeah, you seem to have handled that. I, you know, I'm sure there's there's stories, whatever. But I guess what I'm saying is like that that's not an easy thing. I don't think to to have accomplished that. No, um, it's it's not an easy thing. But I think about I think about the time I have in my life and now even at the age I am now, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't think about that. But now I think about it all the time. Like, where am I going to spend my time? I've got, you know, these five hours or eight hours or whatever it is I want to spend per day on doing something like, where am I going to spend my time? And I always was drawn to the brotherhood of working together with friends on 
projects. Like I think I'm very collaborative in the, that way. I have my own visions of things that I want to do. And lots of times my vision speaks so loudly that it ends up leading whatever it is that I'm working on. But I try to be open and collaborative as much as I can with, with different people. And I think that also because my energy is directed that way, I'm serendipitously or just by the fact that I am manifesting it connect with these people that are on a similar path at a similar time and team up with them to to do these things you know with new deal it was like it was our reaction to vision and we all reacted to that pretty much at the same time so Paul and Steve and I starting that and then starting element and 411 together like you know all of these were reactions to what was going on around us in the industry and we were I would say complementary you know and one way I can look at it is we were polar opposites but I could also say we were very complementary because Steve had a real head for distribution and marketing and you know team related stuff and Paul of course was a manufacturer and I was just the crazy guy with ideas that would just literally be a reflection of whatever I was doing at the time you know, whatever I was passionate about at that moment is what ended up happening, you know, and I, when I got really into hip hop music and I met, you know, Dallas Austin and Lil Jon and all these guys in, in the very beginning of kind of like the hip hop stuff going on in Atlanta, that's when Underworld Element, you know, evolved. And Underworld Element was always a dark kind of urban sort of feel to it and, and what you know the vision was sort of bring together all these skaters from all these different cities who were experiencing these same things I'm experiencing hip-hop and graffiti and you know skateboarding and whatever it might be at that time and um, and this DIY sort of create your own sort of approach to life and uh, and then but I always sort of knew that that was going to split to an underworld and an element you know, there was like the dark side and the light side coming together. Almost everything I did had this sort of dichotomy or, you know, of things working together because in my life it's been that that's the way I felt. So zero sophisto was the same thing. Like we can be complete zeros, but at the same time we have the sophistication that nobody else understands but us, you know, and like these kind of things kept playing off of each other and as they were driving and inspiring me you know in the beginning with new deal i was doing graffiti and stuff but i also was really into comic book art and heavy metal magazine and von Bodie and you know um all the different italian like um what's his name tanini and liberatore and all these different illustrators and stuff from i'd say like late 70s early 80s which were things that I grew up looking at as a kid, I just mashed all that together into what I was spray painting on the street and drawing to put on skateboards. And that sort of became the look and feel of New Deal. It was inspired by graffiti, but it was comic book graffiti kind of all mixed together. You know, it was the themes of, of street life and graffiti. But the New Deal, when I got deeper into hip hop and all these things, didn't really have the same, you know, uh, attraction to me to create for as doing something that was more hardcore and maybe it was a precursor to like a zoo or you know 
the things that were happening, like streetwear was just starting to happen at the same time. Fresh, fresh, was, fresh jive and echo and stuff like that were starting to come out. And I was like, dude, we're the most hardcore of all those people. We're, we're skateboarders. I was going to say, so it's like, very, let's just make that ourselves. Very ahead of its time underworld element. Like the, when, when, when you look back at it now, and I can understand what you're <coughs> saying about New Deal, you, you feeling like it wasn't the right outlet for that expression because it wasn't there's no way i could have done it you know because the little the, the kids that were into new deal were all it was like such a global phenomenon we put it out and like in the first couple of months two or three months it was like number two or three in the market behind you know the giants like powell and vision yeah and like and so we were immediately we tapped into something that was that was so awesome but our distribution and what i would say was sort of the the style of the people that were in the office out in Costa Mesa was so far removed from what I was into with the urban things that were going on. I mean, like I had gotten a, a big warehouse and put a screen print facility in there and had me and Kinsey and Jose Gomez came up from Miami. And, you know, we were just like, we had a little music studio in there. We were making all kinds of different stuff and we were starting to paint murals for people around the town. Like, um, Arrested Development was from there. Speech had his studio not far from us. So we painted a big mural in his studio. And like, you know, we were just, we were into something that was completely different than what the guys that were living in Huntington Beach were into at the time, you know? And so the guys that were living in Huntington Beach were running the the New Deal camp and I was still in Atlanta. And I was like, there's a completely different world going on. You know, like we need to, we need to do this. This is what needs to be. And in, in my normal fashion, I just drew it all up and I said, here's what it is. Here's what it looks like. And this is what it's going to be called. And this is what we need to do, you know? And so it was the reason I mentioned the, the everybody out in California is amazing people, amazing team, but they didn't know how to sell that you know, the way somebody like Mark Echo would have known how to sell Echo. You know what I mean? It's like he was connected and his streetwear got to all the right places. You know what I mean? But when we created Underworld Element, it was like it was still selling to like skate shops in, in middle America that were just like, whoa, this is what he's Andy's doing right now. Like we don't even relate to that. You know, of course, the people in cities related to it, like you know, the, the biggest people, followers that were into it were like New York, Tokyo, San Francisco, London, you know, we had like all these really rad little hubs that were happening. But at that time it was too small of a population within skateboarding to be able to run a company on. Wasn't Curtis McCann. Not long, not long after that. I mean, just recently, um, Eli Gesner told me and he had never even, I've known him for, I don't even know, 35 years or more. And he had never even told me this before, but he basically said that, you know, he was working at Fat Farm at the time when we did Underworld Element. And I kind of grabbed Jeff Pang, who was not even really skating as much anymore. I think he was doing like electrical work or something. And I just said, dude, let me send you a ticket. Like we're going to start this new company and I want you to skate for it. And um, he came down to Atlanta and started skating for us. And Eli told me, you know, just in this last year that those guys weren't, you know, up in New York, everybody was into other stuff. Like Eli had the, had created with some friends, like the, the hottest nightclub or whatever that was going on at the time. And, uh, he was doing fat farm and they were off on the same tangent, but they weren't, it wasn't about skating as much anymore. And, um, he mentioned to me that like, 
hey, that, you know, when we saw Underworld Element, we were like, dude, we got to get, we got to skateboard, you know, <laughs> and that eventually got them back on the track. And they, I think, you know, resurrected what they had been doing with Shut and, and turned it into Zoo after that. Well, like I say, just so influential. Um, you, you had Curtis McCann, right, on, on Underworld Element from the UK? Yeah, Curtis was, a. I mean, I think he's still skating. I don't, I haven't been in touch with him in forever, but man, what a style king and a shredder, you know? Ah, amazing, like, amazing skateboarder. Like, absolutely such a legend. Such a rad skater. Yeah, he's like... Yeah, he, and there were, there were people like that that were all around the world who, you know, not a lot of them, but if, enough of them to make a skateboard team who had the same sort of feelings and approach and everything to skating that I was feeling, you know, in Atlanta and in, when I was traveling up to New York and being influenced by all those guys up in New York too and San Francisco. And so it was very cool to, to, to be able to put all those people together and, and, you know, for a time have, you know, I look back at the team that we had then it was like one of the sickest teams ever. And then with yeah. Sophisto was one of the sickest teams ever too, you know? So it was like, there was a real core of people that were into, into it and into that and, and felt the same way I did. So, you know, though they weren't long lived, um, at least in the forms that, that they were in at that time, to me, they were successful because they touched those people that I was, that I was feeling the connection to at that time, you know? Yeah. Well, I got a couple more questions, if that's all right. Um, yeah, so I got a little bit of time, and I realize I take lo a lot longer than than normal to describe stuff. Man, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. Um, so don't worry about that. So another another <laughs> an another quote that I really liked in your Nine Club was when you were talking about setting up your agency, and you were talking about working with all these brands, and you said. Um, we don't have to interpret our culture. And you were talking about how, because it's that classic thing, right? About how like the trade-off between working with the mainstream and when the mainstream wants to reappropriate the culture, you know, you might as well control it because you, you know, you know the culture. And if you, you might as well take the reins on that rather than let it be misinterpreted, which is, you know, obviously something that skateboarding, all these cultures, hip hop, whatever it is, grapples with perennially as, as the mainstream and as the sports, uh, sorry, the cultures become more mainstream. So in that context, like how do you feel about it today? You know, with this, with this long view that you've got over, over all these cultures, you know, we've, we've, we're talking a 30, yeah. 35 year career, you know, and in that, in that time, you know, you've, you've seen it evolve from what we, what we talked about from your roots to what it is now. And, you know, when, what the period you were talking about in your nine club interview was like late nineties, I believe, you know, like Tony Hawk era, big brands coming yeah. in. But now, you know, like obviously I'm, I, I'll mention the Olympics. It's not a question about the Olympics, but like it's, it's obviously a relevant marker for this, for this context. So I get, yeah. I, I guess um, I'm just interested in your, in your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, my perspective on it would have been different over you know each decade over the last three decades or four decades you know because there was a time in the in the late 80s where i was saying skateboarding is going to be bigger than football you know it's like it's it's so tiny right now it's it's illegal in some places but it's just like the way people love it it's going to be bigger it's going to be bigger than football i didn't realize at that point obviously there was going to be the 
the gravity games and the X games and the Olympics and all those kind of things. But it's just like, I had this feeling that it was just going to keep going and keep growing. And I've had times like in the early nineties to mid nineties where I've just been like, man, no way, never sell out. Like don't go, don't do the X games. Then it just becomes about the money and, and being on TV and not about skateboarding. And then I watched that evolve and, you know, it take it took a long time for it to really catch on because a lot of people felt the same way I did in the very beginning. And then I watched it and I realized, hmm, that was just me being short-sighted. Like this is actually what skateboarding needed to reach more millions of people and connect more little kids with the feeling of the first time of getting on a skateboard and rolling down the street or learning an ollie or, you know, whatever it might be. Like that's really what I'm passionate about when it comes to skateboarding, more and more people having that experience. You know, I give that experience to both of my kids, I take them to roll around on the skateboards to whatever interest level they have on it. And I can see how good they feel when they do, when they learn something or, or they figure something out. And I remember what it felt like for me when I figured things out for the first time, you know? So I feel like my, my no sellout approach that I, you know, had when I was in the late eighties and early nineties has evolved into integrating, you know, the integrating into whatever is the best vehicle for skateboarding at that time. Um, the Olympics, we don't know yet, right? I mean, it's just, there's some good people around it and involved in it, you know, um, that are, that are helping to do the best they can, but that's a, that's an ancient tradition and sports, you know, event run by people, a lot of people that probably don't have a clue about what skateboarding is all about. So, you know, it's going to be, let's hope that the ambassadors that we have for it are going to, are going to make it represent it in a right, in the right way. But if you think about that, and I mean, think about when Tony Hawk Pro Skater, the video game came out, that gave, even if they were doing it on, on, you know, a console that gave so many people a vision of skateboarding that was really well done. Like it was really legit. The tricks seemed impossible at the time. <laughs> Nowadays I see kids doing those tricks that I thought <laughs> like, Oh, I just triple kick flipped onto the top of the ledge of this building. And like, you know, that to me as a skateboarder from the eighties and early nineties, that was like amazing to do that. I think a whole generation of kids grew up on that game and actually started doing those tricks, you know, on their skateboards and yeah. so well if that's our intro like you that, say yeah it exploded the knowledge of skateboarding to everyone you know everyone that was playing a video game knew of that game if they played it or not they knew it they knew tony hawk's name and he's such a great ambassador for skating too and like and now we're entering another stage of that which is the olympics where you know now i talked to a friend well josh friedberg from 411 who is on one of the committees and, you know, he's in the IASC uh, company and everything too, or the uh, committee for skateboarding. And he, um, he said something, a ridiculous number, like 3 billion people or something, you know, that haven't seen skateboarding before are going to see it in the Olympics. So that's like taking it to a whole different level. Um, and now we have these amazing skate parks in every town and every neighborhood everywhere. So you see nine and 10 year old kids coming up, doing just cringeworthy lines and tricks that are just insane, 
you know, mind-blowing stuff that I really thought was only possible on Tony Hawk Pro Skater. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know that these things were even possible, you know? I just saw the little, was it like 10 or 12-year-old kid doing a 1080 on vert the other day? And I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, he just right. pulled that off. Yeah, it's crazy. Squatted out of it just like Tony used to squat out at Del Mar <laughs> when he would make a trick like that. You know what I mean? It's like we're just we're it's just continuing to evolve. Like what I once thought bomb dropping off of a Dempsey dumpster was the most insane thing that would ever be done on a skateboard when I was twelve years old or thirteen years old. It's like seeing Danny jump over the Great Wall of China or jump out of a helicopter and, you know, Burnquist doing the loops switch stance and you know all the stuff tony's contributed and then now these young kids coming up it's like they're standing on the shoulders of these people already knowing that all of that stuff is possible and adding their own twist to it i just didn't couldn't even have imagined it would have continued to evolve the way it has but i think without the exposure that it's getting it wouldn't evolve the same way oh it's a great perspective like it really is because ultimately you're talking about progression aren't you and that is that's that's the that's the absolute heart of it that's where it need that's where it has to be about it's yeah it, it was the, it's the only thing that led me to skateboarding was the fact that there were things that hadn't been done that i could figure out how to do on my own time without a coach telling me to run scenics around the outside of the campus like i could literally do you know I could literally do something new and innovate and, and create just like I would with a pen and a paper or a paintbrush on my skateboard. And as that was the only thing during the late 80s when skateboarding was the most uncool thing you could do, you know, and in the social social life, basically, <laughs> that was the people that were attracted to it is artists and creative people, musicians, visual artists that were like, hey, this is something cool I can do that's not like all the other things. And now it's the main, it's one of the main things, but it's still progressing. And it's still the core of what skateboarding is about, which is that innovation and kind of progression and individuality, expressing yourself as an individual creatively. That is still the core of it, you know? There, of course, there's different little factions of skateboarders out there. But man, how amazing is it that now you talk about me looking back over 35 years, I can look back over 35 years and pick any time frame in my life of skateboarding and art. And there's a skateboard manufacturer making that kind of skateboard that I could buy and ride if I wanted to. Yeah. It's like, we're not even, we're not even limited to popsicle sticks anymore. <laughs> it's like you can ride anything and have a good time. And every one of those things is a valid form of expression, you know, so... Yeah, I had the same argument with surfing where I grew up riding shortboards and I hated longboarders. And then I moved to Malibu and I got a longboard and I was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> could, you know, I could ride my shortboard when the waves are cranking and when they're small, I can walk around on the longboard. It's yeah. like, you know, it's the same sort of mentality. Like, you know, do what do what you're inspired to do at the moment, you know, and there's there's just not enough time. There's not enough time on the in our lives and on the planet to get caught up in anything except pushing yourself to be creative and progress and, and, you know, having a good time, having fun. Yeah. Okay, man. So final question, um, which is, okay. what are you proudest of with this whole, you know, this, this output? Let's, let's put it that way. 
that's <laughs> just just throw that in at the end. I'm yeah. not I'm not generally I'm not generally I'm not generally a proud person because I I think one of the things that's that drives me is I always feel like I can do something more. I can always continue to do something more, and that's been like a sort of like a tireless nagging thing that's always at the back of my mind. Uh, but it's also helped me progress and and push forward. Um, I'd have to say the biggest. So I think about it as like stretching, you know, the furthest stretch from what I feel comfortable about, the thing that's furthest outside of my comfort zone that I was able to to turn into something, you know, successful. Um, the first thing would be my children who are just absolutely amazing. And I think any parent feels the same way about their kids. But I've had this really sort of like blessed life where I've continued to do coming from a time when people had the same job for 30 years and got a gold watch at the end. Like my, my parents were, you know, I just said, I can't live like that. I'm going to, I'm going to switch it up whenever I feel the need and just keep going, you know? And I hopefully have impressed that on my kids and I can see their creativity and everything, which is, I'm so proud of. And I'm only 50% of that because my wife is the other 50%. Um, but I would say strangely enough, (laughs) like, you know, looking back on the skate companies, new deal, of course, was something that I think broke from the norm of everything that I, that, you know, was out there at the time and really sort of helped redefine what skateboarding would be in the nineties and a completely different approach, putting street skating at the front of it all. Um, so I'm really uh, I guess you'd say proud, but I feel like that was a huge accomplishment and a contribution more than something that it's like, you know, pride around it. Um, and then the other thing was actually when we made, I, I got really interested in technology and I have a lot of, a lot of, you know, different kinds of emotions and, and opinions about internet technology and, and just where the world's going. But like, I got really interested in technology in the mid two thousands at a time when I thought I had sort of missed the boat of court of the internet boom or whatever that had happened in the nineties and got involved in doing, using the internet to create scale and efficiency and getting to the most people and personalizing experiences that, the only time I ever felt that feeling of personalizing experiences that much in the past was when I used to, you know, personalize my grip tape with paint pens. You know what I mean? It was like you sort of create your own products. And so I went down this path of, of doing that with different kinds of custom products. And, you know, that went across a whole range of different kinds of companies and products and retailers and direct to consumer and, technology that would allow people to customize things online and everything like that. And I split off from the company that I was in with a guy that was um, really good at, uh, at manufacturing custom, putting together custom programs who had done some Nike customization programs and Reebok shoe programs and some different things like that. And then a scientist who was largely responsible or big part of the team that created virtual reality in the 80s and us three got together and I was sort of the the wacky in a sense brand guy with the with ideas everybody had amazing ideas in that group but like we mashed it all together and we created a, a custom makeup company 
So we patented a technology that we turned an iPhone into a color scanner and used that color scanner for a woman to scan her skin. And then we custom blended makeup that would match her skin tone. That's a simplified version. But we built the machines to do that and like, you know, patented that whole process and basically disrupted this giant beauty industry with a product that was being suppressed by not not even suppressed. It didn't exist yet, but with an idea that was being suppressed by the current kind of ruling paradigm of that industry, yeah, which right. was which was that there's only a few colors. And if you don't fit into one of these colors, well, that's your tough that's your problem. Yeah. You're not you're not beautiful. You're not beautiful. These 19-year-old perfect bodies, perfect faces are beautiful and, you know, but you can buy this product and you can do your best to try to to try to look beautiful and, and when I realized that, at first it was sort of like a a problem that we wanted to solve and I was like, okay, like I love color. I love all these different elements of this like I think we can solve this problem. And of course, Young, the scientist, was just like, I know this. Like, I've worked in color. He was also an artist and a printmaker. And he's like, I've worked in color my whole life. I can do this. So we figured that problem out. The first time we tested it on someone, um, I can remember this woman coming in and she was a, a mix of, couldn't really even tell totally what you know, different nationalities or different races, but she was, she had African-American and she had Caucasian and she just had this really interesting luminous skin that was obviously its own unique skin tone. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just like everybody else's, you know, and she said in my whole life, I think she was probably like late twenties or 30. She said, in my whole life, I've never had, a, I, every woman wears makeup every day, pretty much. I've never had makeup that matched me. I've had to buy like two or three different things and try to mix it together at my house and like do that. And it never looks right. And my skin tone changes in the sun, all this different stuff. And like, you know, and then she used this and basically we mixed her up some stuff and she was just like, oh my gosh. Like, and her reaction and then some others like of all different age groups that just tears came to their eyes. I was just like, oh my God, like we're not actually just solving this dumb color problem we're actually letting all these people know that they are unique they're individuals and you know they should be getting what's exactly right for them like they shouldn't have to settle for something else that's being crammed down their throat through you know advertisements it's easy for mass production to make five or six of something five or six colors you know what I mean or some now it's gone up to you know 15 to 20 colors in some cases but it's like it's it's impossible or it was impossible at that time for those big companies to make one bottle at a time. And so we figured out how to do that. And it was really cool because it was completely outside of my comfort zone. It's like, hey, what are these middle aged dudes, you know, doing in the beauty industry? <laughs> but we saw that we saw this problem and we saw that we had this unique set of skills to be able to solve it. And then and then we did. And it was so fun to do that and then look back or not look back. But as we were looking back, you know, periods of years, I think we did it for four or five years and eventually sold it to this company, Shiseido, a big Japanese company. And um, as we were, you know, working on it, it was like getting, 
you know, winning awards and getting all this press in this industry dominated by these multi-billion dollar companies. That's and amazing. so it was it was so cool to to work on that scale and see that my same attitude of expressing yourself individually and do doing it DIY, doing it yourself to to get what's perfect for you and making your own statement, all those same core things about my life that were so important could be applied to that, you know? Yeah. So it was it was super cool. And of course I couldn't have done it like in the past. I couldn't have done so many different things I've done in my life without the other people that I collaborated with, but I couldn't have done it without these guys. And, um, you know, I was just a part of the puzzle, but it was an amazing experience. It's a, it's a great idea as well. Where'd you get the idea from? <laughs> Strangely enough, my friend and I, one main guy who I'd say was my co-founder, the guy who had done the custom programs before, he and I would basically stay up at night. We were working at another company and we'd stay up at night on the phone and we'd just talk back and forth with ideas. Like literally we had hours and hours of just like, what about this? What about this? And we would just like come up with different kinds of ideas. And he was making, um, he had a young daughter, like a little older than my daughter. And he was making those fizzing bath bombs that you can buy at the at the mall. Yeah. That you go that goes into the bathtub and fizzles, you know. And he was like he kept spending all this money on these things because his daughter wanted every flavor under the sun. And he was like, I'm just gonna make one of those things. So he got a bucket and he got the stuff that it's made from and he like packed it together and he figured out how to make it. And uh and he told me one night, he's like, you know, my daughters are making these bath bombs like I and I just like thought it was gonna be impossible to make it and I totally <laughs> figured out how to make it. And sort of, and then he was like, what about, what if we do something in like skincare or the beauty industry? And within like 10 minutes, we just volleyed back and forth until we had this idea of like, what if we could figure out, you know, that not just a woman's skin tone, but every part of her skin conditions, like how much moisturizer she needed, all these different things and build like this one product. That was our dream, build one product that would cover everything type of thing. We were totally naive and ignorant about what we needed to do but we were like oh it's like we could just get it build an industrial <laughs> kitchen and just whip it up it'll be no problem you know <laughs> and i think our naive our naivete of that feeling of being able like hey it's possible we can do it we were just dumb enough to dive into it head first and like what we thought was going to take a few months took almost 18 months to develop and uh, and then we finally figured it out and kind of cracked the code and had all these different trials and tribulations and struggles along the way. But it was uh, it was, you know, pretty amazing experience. And I think it was like it was just that combination. Same thing as skating. <laughs> same thing as like making a skate zine or starting a skate company or a clothing company or an ad agency or an artist community online or whatever. It was like just a feeling that it could be done, but not enough information to know all the reasons why it's going to be almost impossible to do or something, you know, it was just like a, a little bit of being, you know, I guess, happily, happily ignorant and just going for it, I think is, is what, you know, led us down the path. And then once we got in, we just had the full on grit and just like, we're not going to, we're not, we're going to, we're going to make it happen. We're, there's no way that we're not going to do this, you know, and it's, and you have this, I'm sure as you have your own 
agency. It's like once you put your time and energy into it and you're out there in the world and people are seeing that you're doing it, then the commitment to it just gets more and more solid. And it's like, and then for me, I'll put money into it that I, in some cases, don't even really have or sell things to get the money to put into it that I need to do, need it to do it. And then I'm even more committed. And it's like, it's just like you get deeper and deeper into it until you're like, there's no way out except to make <laughs> it successful, you know? So I think that's been kind of uh, something that's happened throughout my life. And it's just taught me not to, not to be so, not to hold on so much to kind of like, what the original vision of something is and to let it evolve naturally. I think that's another reason why I've been able to be successful is uh, they call it in technology pivoting, but like it's just the ability to see once you start to do something, how it's being received and what you need to do to make it better, you know, just to improve and iterate on, on what you've created because you know, some people go into things and I was like this as a teenager in my early 20s. I go into it saying, this is the vision. This is what it has to be like. It can't be any different. And then you realize over time, gosh, you, you can be so much more powerful when you collaborate and when you listen to other creative ideas. And then when you realize there are other people that are just as passionate as you are with just like incredible talent that if you combine your forces, you could be even more powerful, which is you know, loops me kind of, in a sense, back around to that statement I made about the role of art. It's like, you know, we are the people that can make the changes. And especially when we start putting our heads together, it's like, it becomes unstoppable. And I think that that's, you know, that's a really cool, again, I've said this in the past, like 20, 30 years ago, and throughout my career, it keeps seeming like it's the best time in history to be an artist and to be creative. But I think right now it's like, it's just paramount that that creative people, you know, realize what their value is and what their power is. That's a really great point to end it, man. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. <laughs> awesome. Was, yeah, thank, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. That was, that was so, that was really great. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Well, it's great to talk to you i mean i can tell you're you you're passionate and you live this and have grown up on all this stuff too and it's like we're all doing it you know equally like all of us all of us have are doing this all of us are creating this this reality and this future and you know this even this present moment that we're in and it's like i you know i had this short-lived really competitive streak in me as a teenager, you know, where I was like, I'm going to win this contest. I'm going to go to, I'm going to do this. And it was good. It served me to kind of propel me forward. But it, 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 as soon as we got to the point where we were starting to do the skateboard companies, it was like, it was all about collaboration, bringing as many creative people as I could into the process. And like, that's why, you know, I guess something I guess I could say I'm proud about is always putting on creative people that I saw coming up, whether they were skaters or artists or designers. You know, you mentioned Dave Kinsey and I I mentioned Jose Gomez and like, you know, there's in my history, there's there's dozens, I think, probably. And many of those people have gone on to make huge contributions and I didn't give them their creativity or I didn't give them, you know, their ability to do any of that stuff. 
but I just was in a place where I could connect the dots to give them the opportunity and in some cases a platform to, 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 to show that, you know, and to make, start to make that impact. And then, you know, that feels really good to have been a springboard for, for a lot of creative people. Um, go, you know, as we're ending this conversation and I'm thinking about you and your creativity and what you're contributing over there, you know, with your agency and what you do, which I feel like I know that and I've been there. So I feel like I understand it. Um, you know, I feel like that's one of the most, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of. And sometimes it's backfired on me. I've had people stab me in the back and, you know, but for the most part, I look back on it. And even in some cases, people that I had disagreements with, you know, during the time, those are my brothers and sisters. You know, those are friends that I look back and have a lifelong friendship with. And like, we each evolved personally in our own way, you know, got over our egos in our own way. And like, you know, I think, I don't know, just look back on it. I think that's, that's something I'm, I'm proud of. Well, you should be, cause that's not easy. You know, like I said, that's why, that's why I asked you the friendship question because my, yeah, I, I know that's not easy and, and you're right. It's, it's about parking that ego, isn't it? And learning that, and that's it really and, is. And, and that's not that's not an easy thing to do when you're a kid at all. Like when you're in your twenties, and you and and you you know. Oh you, my gosh! You said like you're making your mark, making your mark on the world. You know. Yeah. Like the the timing, the timing with me and Shepard and Dave when we started uh, what we called first Bureau of Imagery back then, and then the first when you know, well, I first asked Shepard to come out from providence to come out and and come to california i was like dude it's happening in california you got to come out here you know and he was kind of up up there still in the area of RISD, and he was bombing new york and stuff all the time but like you know i was like dude skateboarder artist like and you're you know it, it potentially you're like the andy warhol of our generation in a way and like your ability to to you know, get this message out. It's like, come out here to California and, and let's make a skateboard, you know, let's do whatever we can. And like, he came out and then, you know, Ken Block um, had asked me, Ken and Damon were friend of, friends of mine and they were doing drawers and they had asked me, do you, you know, you have an artist? When Ken was like, I, I need a designer, man. I need somebody to come out that knows the graphic design and work for me. And I go, I have this friend, he's in Atlanta. I don't know if he'll move out here, but let me see. So I got Kinsey to come out and interview with Ken and Damon. And, you know, he became the artist for DC, ended up doing the DC logo and all that stuff. And like, no, you right. know, that, that stuff all happened. And then Dave, you know, left DC and started doing his tree fort thing and other things he was doing. And all everything sort of weird in a weird way, different things for all three of us crashed at the same time. And we all just like banded together and did this little design firm for a while, which was uniquely successful in a time when there wasn't any design firms doing anything like that. We were the only ones that were doing it. And yeah. so we did a lot of the designs for that industry in a short period of time. But we were in three completely different places in their life in our lives. I had just been a pro skateboarder and done and was just retiring from skateboarding and had done my own skate companies and 411 and all that stuff. Dave was just coming up. He'd just gotten his first jobs and just been out in, you know, in this thing. He was 
you know, lived his life as a skateboarder and artist and everything and was and was like you know passionate about he was in that space where he's like i'm conquering the world you know i'm going to conquer the world type of space and then you know shepherd was just passionate about street art and we were trying to force shepherd into learning how to use the computer you know learning how to use the design tools that were out at that time which i had basically learned in art school you know so i was one of the early people using those things and so you know, Dave also went to the same school as I did a little bit after me. So he knew how to use them. So we were, you know, working on that stuff. There was just these three people with three completely different places in their lives. And I look back at that time period when I could see exactly where each person was pushing in each direction. And it's easy for me to just take the long view and just say like, hey, like we were actually (laughs) brought together into that close of an orbit for a reason, you know, we were creative people doing something different at a time when nobody else was was doing it. And each person has gone off in their own direction and done things. But we're still close friends. You know, there was a time when we weren't that close of friends when it first went down. And, you know, then Dave and Shepard worked together on Black Market and that didn't personally work out for them. But everybody realizes like with the long view, it's like, you know, we're creative people like we're we're just like a global a global network and brotherhood of this, of, you know, people that are creating stuff, you know? So, I mean, I don't look back with animosity at all. I look back with love on all of that stuff and feel like today I have great relationships with all these people in the, you know, in the past of, of projects that I've worked on. Some have just continued, some have like gone in different directions, but it's like, you know, it's, it, as you said, and it, when you're young, it's a challenge. But I think as you get older, one of my inspirations for that, this is, as an aside, was Dallas Austin. He just an amazing, like really similar age as I was. I think he might even be younger than I am. And he was coming up in the music scene the same time I was doing skateboarding stuff in Atlanta, and we became buddies. And um, and just seeing the way he always brought in friends and always brought in family and literally taught some of like the best producers in music how to produce music and like gave them apprenticeships and you know he was just always putting people on and so that was always inspiring to me and I still look look back at it because some of those same people he's still working with today you know yeah so it's like it's it's just like you know some people have a natural ability to sort of let their egos be in the background and realize that the real the real opportunity is to you know that two heads are better than one or three heads or four heads you know what i mean it's like you you know put people together you're going to come up with something that's greater than the sum of the parts you know yeah i mean it's generosity like that is very inspiring and and i and those ideas travel like you say don't they you know i mean you mentioned growing up with it like for me as a kid my listeners will be so bored of hearing me say this because i talk about this loads on the podcast but like you know for me and like what you guys did was was really inspiring you know that that creativity that generosity that seeing that you could create in that way seeing that you know that that filtered down you know that filtered down to a kid in manchester in the uk do you know what i mean like and like that's awesome but like i think that's a really common story isn't it that these roots these 
these things they do they do have an effect you know they do they do have an impact and like you say it almost brings it back full circle to what we were talking about earlier on you know like this this storytelling this this communication you know it, it is it is important like because it does have an impact it's true it's very true and when it comes from love like when it's about giving and opening and putting people on and giving opportunity and collaborating and and being better than yourself or in my case being better than myself by collaborating with other people then it does radiate out there when it's about you know me trying to protect what i've got and trying not to you know lose what i have and it's about lack and fear then it just implodes on me you know it's a, it's yeah. such a it's such a it, basic law of the universe Definitely. and like it's whatever whatever we put out there is coming back you know whatever we and whether it's good or bad and if it's good it just ripples it radiates out there and like you said to some kids skateboarding in manchester who probably didn't know or think that there could be a skate company or whatever from you know manchester and later went on to do their own things with just a seed of that inspiration or just a little spark you know, everybody, all the creative people, that's all they need. They can translate that into their own time and culture and space and companies and brands and whatever else it may be. But it's like just saying like, hey, fuck it. You can do it. You know, you can do it yourself. Just, you know, put your mind to it and, and focus on it. It seems like we can say that as skaters with more confidence than anybody because, you can't grind a handrail by like reading about it or playing a video game about it. You got to ollie and commit to doing it, you know? And when you do that and you make it, the the elation and the confidence that comes out of that is so great. It's like to us, that's just an innate part of our culture and the, who we are, you know? And we can apply that to anything in our lives. And so I think that, you know, I think we can say that with a fair amount of confidence that, that uh, that's like a law of the universe, you know. So there you go. That was me and Andy Howell. And I hope you enjoy it. So I wanted to explain why that was quite a meaningful conversation for me. And I did say this to Andy at the end of the conversation. Because the things, I, I kind of alluded to this in the, in the podcast, the things that Andy and his mates did, did have a massive effect on my life. I actually bought that first Underworld Element Pro model when it came out. I think it was about 14 or 15 or something. Got it in split in Manchester, skated to the Crown Courts, tried to ollie up the Crown Court steps, the three or the four, I think it was, did half a kickflip and put my foot through it. I was absolutely gutted and I ended up having to skate a bar adjacently Burger King board for the next six months while, you know, I saved up for another suitably skinny board and I was absolutely gutted about that. But, you know, I thought it was a pretty funny story and he was certainly tickled by that. And then another thing that made me laugh was the story that he told in his nine club about how the big deal jeans came about and how him and his mates started wearing 40 inch jeans because it was so hot in Atlanta. And that led to the big jean craze. Now I remember after 1281 came out, me and my mate, Paul Burkett, who's probably listening to this, all right, Burkett, headed into Manchester on a mission to buy some 40 inch jeans that we could cut down. Now bearing in mind, this is probably like the end of 91. So if you were, you know, you stood out if you were trying to do that, really. So I remember we went to the market under the Arndale and we went around all the stalls asking him if they sold 40-inch jeans and they all absolutely pissed themselves and started shouting to each other, look at these tools. 
like I said, ideas travel. That's why I called this episode that, and that's why you've got to get them out there, which is one of the things we talked about, and that's why I wanted to get Andy on, and uh, that's why I've enjoyed this conversation so much. So thanks, Andy. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope to meet you in person one of these days. Elsewhere, thanks to everyone who's donated. I mentioned that in the last episode, I think. Really amazing to get some support from everybody out there in podcast land and to hear from people that, you know, they might not want to buy some merch, but they're still up for supporting the show and helping to keep it free and ad-free. If that sounds like you, head on over to the link on Instagram in my bio where you'll see a donate button and do your worst. If nothing else, it'll stave off the CBD, mattress, razor, toothbrush and cereal ads for another few months. Gotta be honest, I do feel a little bit weird about the donate button, can feel a little bit like begging. But then I was chatting to a good friend of mine and I mentioned this and he's like, Jesus, if people think after the amount of work you've put into this and the amount of stuff you've given away for free after the last three and a half years that you're out of order for asking for donations from your listeners, then fuck them. So that made me feel a bit better. Anyway, like I say, if you've enjoyed the show and feel like donating, then good on you. I'll appreciate it. Um, And while we're here, I've had a few more comments recently as I've picked up a lot of new guests, uh, guests, listeners, about the perceived lack of female guests. That's where that came from, which comes up every now and again. Um, And I thought I'd quickly address it, give you an update on that one. Here's Peg. Coming to say hello. All right, Peg, you coming in? It's like, what are you doing? It's because I'm in the shed, so he's very intrigued by what's going on in the shed. Anyway, as I've said at numerous points over the last months and years, it's not for want of trying to get more women on the show. With the blokes, I'd say, if you'll pardon me borrowing a topical metaphor, that the R rate on a scale I've just invented is eight, i.e. for every ten blokes I ask, eight say yes. For women, it's probably two. For every 10 women I ask, two agree. That's, and you know, it's a, asking 10 people to come on the podcast doesn't actually sound like a lot of work, but it is quite a lot of work, to be honest. So, you know, having to send 10 queries to get two back is quite a mission. And that's if they even do get back to me, which often they don't. Now, I've really got no idea why this is the case, to be honest. I've never had any idea. I mean, it's... It's not like um, it's not like on air I do I do hit jobs on people. You know, it's it's all pretty friendly. I'm not even trying to claim there's any pattern or deep rooted reason for it. I'm just telling you what I know from the empirical evidence of me doing this show for the last three and a half years, which is it's really really hard to book female guests. I'm going to keep trying, like I always do, and I've actually got some great women guests coming up in the next few weeks, but that's kind of how it is so there you go you know thanks if you have been in touch and, and pointed that out recently always appreciate the feedback but all i can say is i'll keep trying and um if you have got any ideas keep them coming you can hit me up at podcast at we are looking sideways.com or on my instagram at we look sideways where i am very active on the dms but be warned i do post them so yeah there you go all right that's it for this week like i say it was a long episode i've got loads coming up in the next few weeks yes like i say even a few more women so i'll wrap it up there and i'll see you next time nice one